Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 13th. Today, why this new coronavirus surge could be the worst yet, and the Democrats' last hope to take the Senate. So the situation in the Midwest was described this week as dire. Annie Gowan covers the Midwest for The Post. COVID is really hitting the upper Midwest states and the mountain states particularly hard. These are areas of the country that maybe didn't have any cases at all in the first surge. Good afternoon, North Dakota. Uh, and thank you for joining us on this uh, COVID press briefing. Uh, one of the places where it's been super hard to hit is North Dakota, where cases are up 60 percent. And the governor this week, Doug Burnham, said that the hospital capacity is now at 100 percent. It took us over 200 days, uh, over seven months to October 19th to get to 5,000 active cases. And now uh, today we've uh, crossed over this weekend 10,000 cases. He is now allowing nurses, nurses and other healthcare workers who test positive for COVID but might be asymptomatic to still come to work because the staffing is stretched so thin. So one of the things that we're seeing is that in these more red states, in these Western states, is that local officials, state and local officials have been reluctant to issue mask mandates. But now the situation is so grave that they're beginning to put in some more controls. So, for example, a Governor Kim Reynolds in Iowa has continuously, you know, rejected a mask mandate as a feel-good option. But even she this week said, okay, you know, if you're in a, lar- in a large gathering, you need to be wearing a mask. Effective at midnight, any social, community, recreational, leisure, or sporting gatherings with more than 25 people indoors or 100 people outdoors will be prohibited unless all people over the age of two wear masks. Minnesota's governor, Tim Walz, also said this week that their hospitals in the Twin Cities are nearing capacity. We are in the midst of a significant uh, surge in coronavirus cases. I wish I could tell you that this was unexpected, um, but it was not. There's no hot zone in Minnesota. The entire state is a hot zone, which means these or red zone. So which means these the cases are rising just as much in these tiny towns as they are in the big cities. Over the last about 10 days, we have seen that exponential growth in Minnesota. We've seen it uh, hit record cases of uh, identifying, and that's not just because we're testing more. He was also super critical of the of the governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, who has become sort of a darling of the conservative movement lately because she's refused to put in any 
statewide mask mandate or any other controls, even as the cases are exponentially rising. So yesterday they hit a record of 2,000 cases and their hospital capacity is also strained. Governor of South Dakota, this is how we do social distancing in our state. That was great. Less COVID, more hunting. That's the plan for the future. Across the U.S., we are seeing a record-breaking surge in COVID cases. On Thursday, the U.S. reported more than 150,000 new cases just on that day alone. The scary thing about it is that if you look on a curve, it's just going straight up. But we don't know where this curve ends. We don't know where the peak is. This could be just the very beginning of the curve. That's William One, a science reporter for The Post. He's been looking into why there's been such a huge spike in COVID cases. This is part of that fall surge a lot of experts were warning about. It's getting colder, people are moving indoors. But also, I think there's just this pandemic fatigue. People are tired of taking precautions. That plays a huge role. You've also got a lot more activity going on. You know, back in spring, even in the summer, a lot was still shut down. People were not going out there being more careful. You've got a lot of economic activity resuming, and that's going to lead to, you know, more spread. I also wonder if there's partially like a fear factor here. I feel like if you think back to how we felt in April and May, where it just felt like there was this sense of being consumed by fear of getting sick and and hearing all the horror stories. And though that fear is there, I think that because so many of us are living our lives, it's easy to forget like, well, you know, it's like I'm going to take precautions to the best of my ability, but I'm still carrying on with my life. And I wonder if that has started to edge out a little bit of the precautions that people were taking previously. Totally. I think that's like a very big factor in this. It's just we're, you know, there's this whole, all this talk of like, we're learning to live with it. That like really downside of that is we really are learning to live with it in that just, you know, a thousand people dying every day is like a matter of fact. If you told someone that, you know, in January, like, you know, in a few months, we're going to have people just dying in droves every day and People aren't going to care. It it would be unthinkable back then. So where are we seeing the most intense hotspots and outbreaks right now? You know, there are hotspots and there are concentrations, especially in the Midwest and the West. But it's everywhere this time. You know, in spring, it was New York and California. In summer, you talked about the Sun Belt, Texas, Florida, Georgia, but this time it's just everywhere. The hardest hit spots, though, are a lot of these places that didn't have it before. North Dakota, Wisconsin, Montana, these are kind of like the last frontiers untouched by the virus. And once it's reached there, it seems like it's just taking off. And for the places in the country that are experiencing these outbreaks for the first time, are there particular challenges for them that's different from something like New York, where they have now had multiple experiences with going through this rise in cases? There's the problem of not having experience. You know, a lot of hospitals um, in New York, California, they have a lot of that built-in experience in their ICUs. There's also this factor that's hard to talk about, but it's just 
politics, you know, a lot of these harder hit states right now, they're Republican, conservative. These are a lot of the states where the people listened to Trump when he said, you know, you could wear a mask or not wear masks. We can learn to live with this just as bad as the flu. These are kind of the key audiences for that. And so when it's hitting these states and people are not reacting to it like you might have seen in some of the Democratic states, that's a really potent factor as well. So obviously we're seeing this very precipitous rise in the infection rates, but what are we seeing in the death rates and the number of people who are dying? The greatest thing that's happened in our fight against the virus is we've driven down the death rate. And it's just the wild success that is attributed to, we know more about the virus. Like you think back to those times in New York, you had doctors kind of discovering, um, proning people's bodies, like putting them on their stomachs, turning them. Hmm. You have ICU nurses who just know, you know, when to put someone on a ventilator better and when not to, when to do everything you can to avoid that because of the death rate that comes with that. So a lot of this is just hard-won experience. And that's the thing that's really worrisome this time around is all those ICU staff, that is really specialized expertise. You can have nurses come in from other departments and try to help out, but as those hospitals get stretched thinner and thinner and the ICU expertise kind of evaporates, that death rate, there's a very good chance of it rising. And it's not some like set thing that's in stone. Once you achieve this death rate, it'll never go up again. It changes and fluctuates. Even between states, it can change and fluctuate. Hmm. That's so interesting. And I hadn't thought about that before because I feel like at the beginning of the pandemic, so much of our conversation was, are there going to be enough doctors, healthcare workers? What happens if some of them get sick? How is staff going to be stretched then just from the perspective of like human bodies to throw at this problem? But now what you're saying is that this improved death rate is only because so many of those healthcare workers actually have that experience from the last seven or eight months. And that in and of itself is not something that we can rely on as this problem gets larger. Yeah, so what's going to happen this time around, why people are so worried about this wave is, you know, very soon you're going to see all the problems that we had before starting to pile up, but new ones too on top of that. So we had all this time, but we never really fixed our shortages of PPE. You know, for all the Trump administration's talk of how they were going to take charge, they really just refused to use the powers they had in the last few months to push companies and coordinate our country's manufacturing distribution of PPE. And same thing on testing. I mean, there's been a really great increase of testing. We've increased it by a lot. But the demand for testing has also increased dramatically. So there are those past problems. But you're also going to have a shortage of expertise because last time, if you remember, New York sent out a beacon call and there were doctors and nurses that came rushing to help. With the virus everywhere across the country, you can't, you can't send people a certain place. Everywhere is running out of doctors and nurses and ICU expertise. That's something that is really concerning this time around. So if this is what we're already starting to see, and we're here at the middle of November, obviously it's getting colder, more people are going to be indoors throughout the rest of the winter. And then there's also Thanksgiving and Christmas and these times of year where it feels really, really difficult to just say, I'm not going to interact with anybody. How do we expect this to continue to unfold in the next couple of months? Yeah, this part, I I feel bad. I feel like every time you invite me on the show, I'm like really pessimistic. But there's so many things that 
are kind of pointing this the wrong way. So you do have like the holidays coming up. If you look at what happened in Canadian Thanksgiving, which is earlier than ours, it drove infections way up there. There's a lot of worry that the same thing is going to happen with the double whammy of Thanksgiving, Christmas. You have like colder weather, which makes helps the virus survive better with less humidity. The pandemic fatigue, which is going to, I think, increase. But there's this added thing now where... There's also this political polarization that is like very dangerous. So if you think about it, we have 10 weeks until the Biden inauguration. During those 10 weeks, people are saying, well, you know, we're going to reset the effort. We'll get our ducks in a row and we'll do it right this time. In those 10 weeks, you could have the infection rate doubling. According to some of the models I've been looking at, you could have deaths go from we're in like the 230s right now. You could have up to like 370,000 deaths by then. You know, that's a huge number. So a lot of public health officials saying we cannot wait until inauguration to get our act together. We need to take some action now. Because we think about this idea of a lame duck period for an outgoing president, and it usually is just uh, sort of a term that we use when it comes to the bureaucracy of government or just like getting things done and that things don't usually get done in these in these last few months. But here we're talking about a lame duck period where arguably President Trump has less of an incentive than ever to really get his hands around the pandemic problem. And that in the meantime, if we're just trying to wait out until the end of January to make meaningful moves on new policies to help get the pandemic under control, like that translates into many, many lives that could or will be lost. There are a lot of people gaming out what Trump could do to sabotage the pandemic effort during this lame duck period. You know, lame duck periods are always messy affairs, but this could be the like deadliest lame duck period ever in our history. He could start firing people like head of CDC or FDA in the middle of, you know, vaccine trials, in the middle of the pandemic control. Worst of all is he could just simply do nothing. And that in itself is enough to just allow the infection rates to keep rising. Inaction at this point is like deadly because... We're in this exponential curve where if you take no action, that curve is going to go up and up and there is no peak. You don't know when you're going to reach your high point until you take action. At the same time, there's also this kind of lingering doubt question in the public health world. I talked to like dozens of public health people in the last week about, well, what does Biden mean? What does this turnaround mean? Some of them are kind of like, they, they described it like a, as a blank canvas. Like say you started with a blank canvas, it would be one thing we could paint this incredible, beautiful picture. But this canvas has been kind of incredibly muddied up at this point. And so in the back of a lot of people's minds, there's like, well, how are we really going to get act together? How is this going to turn out? Yeah. And I think that that issue of trust also applies not just to public health officials and to the government, but I think also trust in each other. Like even those of us who believe in science, who think that masks are a good idea and who are trying to do our best in in the middle of this crazy situation, I think that there's a sense of, well, no matter what I do, this is going to go on for months and months and months because uh, our country just can't get its act together. So what's the point of trying to be hypervigilant if nobody else is? And I'm just going to be the only person stuck in my house all day while everybody else lives their life as normal. And I feel like in some ways the hardest part is like trust in each other and trust in this country that like if we really tried hard all at once, like this could be a problem that we could really get under control. 
Totally. Like one person I talked to, Tom Frieden, former CDC director, he was saying social cohesion. If you look at any country that's been successful, social cohesion is like the key factor. It's not like even democracy or authoritarian, it's social cohesion. Do we believe in each other? Do we believe in our government? I feel like we're like some of those soldiers in Saving Private Ryan stuck in a foxhole. I've, I've never seen Saving Private Ryan, which I know it's a bad thing. Oh, really? Okay. Any, take any like military movie. I feel like we're those people in the foxhole and you're looking over at your fellow guy and you're like, do I trust you enough that we can rush this bunker hill and take it. It takes a lot of like, you know, like belief in each other. And I think that's the outstanding question is, like, are we in this together or not? After all of this divisive thing we've been through, like, do we believe in each other and are we in it together? William One is a science reporter. Annie Gowan covers the Midwest for The Post. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy to AI to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. Um, so who are you and what do you do? I'm uh, Paul Kane, senior congressional correspondent for The Washington Post. I cover Congress, America's most beloved institution. <laughs> Kidding, of course. As you probably know, there are still two Senate races that have not been settled from November 3rd. And now they're heading to runoff elections. On January 5th, you are going to have this incredibly rare moment in which you have two overtime Senate races. It's the best way to think of it. Uh, Overtime, extra innings. And those two races are going to decide the majority in the Senate. If Democrats manage to win both these runoffs, they will effectively have control of the Senate. If not, the Republicans will. This is a monumental race. If Joe Biden faces Mitch McConnell as the Republican majority leader, his window of opportunity for a legislative agenda really just shuts almost entirely. And so the control of the entire Senate all comes down to Georgia. Georgia is a state that, by law, requires its statewide officials, who people running for senator, governor, state attorney general, they must win at least 50.1% of the vote, a real majority. And this year, neither of the two Senate races in Georgia were able to hit that threshold. Here's the deal. The two races come down to incumbent David Perdue. The most insidious thing that Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden are trying to perpetrate and Bernie and Elizabeth and Kamala or what Kamala or Kamala, 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 I don't know. Trying to win another six-year term up against John Ossoff. Enough incompetence, deceit, corruption, division. Change has come to Georgia and retirement is coming for Senator David Perdue. 
a 33-year-old Democrat with a background in documentary filmmaking. And on the other side, you have appointed Senator Kelly Loeffler. Well, look, there's no room in this country for racism, but this isn't what the Black Lives Matter political organization is about. I mean, this is an organization that, uh, you know, seeks to destroy American principles. And I had to draw... From an amazingly wealthy family, her husband's firm owns the New York Stock Exchange, and she is up against the Reverend Raphael Warnock. We've been trying to beat back this virus of racism since 1619 when 20 slaves arrived on the shores of Jamestown, Virginia. Senior minister of Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Martin Luther King Jr. was the preacher. So why is it that Georgia has this system in place in the first place where if you don't get a majority of the votes for a statewide office, that it automatically goes to a runoff? It's a throwback law that was sort of created back in the Jim Crow era of the South and the the 1960s in which the white power brokers that be did not want to get into a situation in which there were multiple white candidates dividing up the vote and that a black candidate with, you know, 36 percent would have the plurality and get elected. Really? Yes. This was always designed as a, a way to make sure that you would have white candidates winning statewide races. That's wild to me that that like continues to be the case now. Yeah. Raphael Warnock is attempting to make history as the first black Democrat elected to the Senate from the South. Like there were post-Civil War in the Reconstruction era, there were a couple of African-American senators. After that, it just went away. You're looking at a legacy where... Tim Scott, the Republican from South Carolina, is really the only black senator ever elected from the South. So that's what Warnock is up against in this race. So I think it's really easy to look at what's going to happen on January 5th and basically say, oh, well, this is going to be November 3rd all over again. But I think it's important to remember that there are a lot of dynamics that are very different here. In a special election, it's only going to be the Senate that people are voting on. President Trump is not going to be on the ballot. And I think that could change things. Mm -hmm. But also the fact that this is happening on January 5th, which strikes me as a pretty strange day to have an election right after the holidays. And like, is anyone going to remember that it's happening and actually show up to vote? You know, that's a, a really good question. State law sets this runoff election date. And frankly, in years past, the Georgia runoffs were usually held in mid-December, before the holiday high tide moment between Christmas, New Year's, and a couple days after. For some quirk in state timing, state law, they set January 5th this time, which means, you know, early voting begins in Georgia on December 14th Hmm. and goes all the way to the end of the month. It is going to be a very strange dynamic to have all of this going through the holiday season. Are people really even paying attention? Trump voters by then will most likely be dealing with the fact that Donald J. Trump is not going to be president. So do you think that would be animating for those voters in terms of having this moment where they're coming to realize that President Trump isn't going to continue to be president and then have this other election that they can suddenly participate in? So the hope from the Senate Republican point of view is that they can get a twin message going that will 
both hold their Trump MAGA voters, and there are a bunch of them in Georgia, that they will hear the message over and over again that Biden and Democrats stole Georgia in the presidential race. There's no evidence of that. There's no even real hint of anything nefarious about that victory. But they're hoping that that will energize those voters And at the same time, they're hoping that they can go to the more traditional conservative Republican voters and simply say, that's why we need to win these two Senate seats so we can prevent the quote-unquote socialism of the Democrats, and that's what will happen if they win the Senate majority. But it's also tricky if the Trump voters think that the Democrats just stole the election they might not want to show up anyway because mm-hmm. they think, well, the Democrats are just going to steal the election again. What's what's yeah. the point of voting? That there could be a sense of apathy among some of these voters. Agnostic feelings of disenfranchisement of, you know, what's the point of voting if you're just going to come steal the election? Well, then how does it work for Democrats? Like coming off Joe Biden having won the presidency, will that be helpful or hurtful to Democrats in their messaging to voters in in Georgia about why it's so important for them to come out and vote? The initial instinct is to say that it's going to be bad for the Democratic candidates because it really nationalizes this race and makes it about something bigger than the two incumbents who Democrats feel have a lot of weaknesses themselves. But there are Democratic consultants who tell me that, look, these two races are nationalized and there's nothing you can do about it. And the best thing you can do as Democrats is embrace that, Mm. embrace the nationalization and try to get a really historically high level of black turnout, especially around Atlanta, Savannah, and some of the other areas with a high percentage of minority voters. And that the only way you're going to do that to generate that type of turnout is not by running some sort of small ball, modest campaign. They need to make black voters believe that this is about advancing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's agenda. And that means they have to go all in. When you say all in, are you talking about like money fundraising? I mean, are we seeing big numbers so far in terms of those kinds of resources being dedicated to this race? Well, yes, we haven't seen actual numbers yet from the Democrats on the campaign side. Republicans announced today they've raised something like $33 million specifically dedicated to Georgia. I would imagine that Democrats' numbers are as good, if not quite a bit better. I think it is not out of the question to think that Ossoff and Warnock will both top $50 million in a two-month span between the general election normal day, November 3rd, and the runoffs on January 5th. Well, I want to talk more about Ossoff and Warnock Neither of them have pretty significant experience in politics. How did they end up in this place? And are there concerns about the fact that if they are relative political newbies, that maybe they're not the best candidates to carry this over the finish line? Yeah. Listen, they are two very different people. Warnock is the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is one of the single most storied churches in the black civil rights movement. Mm. He is charismatic. He can deliver wonderful fire and brimstone speeches that will get the party faithful wanting to run through brick walls for them. 
John Ossoff is a 33-year-old white Jewish guy from the metro Atlanta area who doesn't have much of a background. A few years, he worked on Capitol Hill for Congressman Hank Johnson. Ossoff has gone off and he started a documentary film company. The biggest commonality between Warnock and Ossoff is their lack of real experience. You now have this sort of odd couple of Democrats with different backgrounds running together. They're not an official ticket. You're going to have to cast a vote in each of the Senate races. But the reality is they are a ticket and they might work well together. They might gel and be able to draft off of one another to constituencies of voters that they might not normally be able to get. You know, Asif may benefit from an incredibly high black turnout that he wouldn't on his own normally see. Warnock might have entrees into certain Jewish communities and younger white progressive areas that he might not otherwise have. That's the Democratic hope, is that those two together with their very different backgrounds will actually push one another in their specific weaknesses and they win both races. Paul Kane is a senior congressional correspondent for The Post. for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith, and our associate producer is Rennie Svernovsky. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 